Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. She just died? Wow. I didn't know that. I just, uh, you're telling me now for the first time. She led an amazing life. What else can you say? She was an amazing woman. She was just an inspiration, and with her gone, it makes this scary time even scarier. The death last Friday of the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has not only robbed the United States of one of its most respected public figures, it has also dropped a powder keg into an already volatile election campaign. Her death has given Donald Trump the opportunity to fill a third vacancy on the Supreme Court in the first term of his presidency, thereby leaving the court with a clear conservative majority for perhaps a generation to come. Democrats have cried foul, saying a new appointment to the court should not be made so close to an election, with voters going to the polls to elect a president on November 3rd. They argue it should be left to the winner of the race, Trump or his Democratic rival Joe Biden, to nominate a candidate who would then go before the Senate for confirmation. In support of that argument, they point to the fact that the Republican majority Senate refused to give a hearing to Barack Obama's nominee to the court, Merrick Garland, in 2016, on the grounds that it would be wrong to make an appointment to the Supreme Court so close to an election. For more on this, I'm joined from Washington by our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, what a story this is unfolding just weeks before the election. Before we get into the politics of it all, though, I think we should reflect for a moment on the remarkable life and career of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What was it about her that made her so respected on both sides of the political divide in the US? Well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is somebody with a very long career in the law. She was 87 when she passed away last Friday. Um, but I think it was only really in recent years that she became this cultural icon. Uh, the moniker Notorious RBG was first created by um, an NYU law student uh, on a Tumblr account. And this really took off. Um, whereby RBG became this symbol of liberalism, uh, of feminism. And um, we saw all around the US, here in Washington, for example, there's murals of RBG on some of the buildings here in the city. And she really, I think, entered the public public consciousness as a, as a very important figure. But that was not always the case. Um, she had a very long history uh, as a lawyer, um, as, a, as a litigator, as an academic, and then finally with her appointment to the Supreme Court by Bill Clinton in 1993. Um, but I think it's her uh, her cultural importance, really, that was is going to be remembered when people look back on her career. Even before she was called to the bench, as you just mentioned there, Suzanne, she really made her mark as a lawyer, didn't she, in cases that had a real impact on people's lives and on social political conditions in the US? Yeah, and I think it's important to reflect on how her formation developed. I think it's interesting, you know, people have been reading and, and watching documentaries about her life and uh, in her early years, she was married um, and uh, a mother and spent some time in Sweden uh, working on a research project. And this seems to have had a huge influence on her. Um, she saw uh, that, for example, she spoke about later, how at that time, maybe 5% uh, of the makeup of a law firm was female in America. It was about 20% in Sweden. Um, so when she comes back to the United States, she started in the early 70s working for the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, working with them as they founded their women's rights project. And this began really her ascent to stardom, if you like. She began to um, bring gender discrimination cases uh, to the courts. Um, she argued six gender discrimination court cases before the Supreme Court, of which she won five, which is a very, uh, very, very good record. Um, and she's often been compared to 
um, Thurgood Marshall or civil rights lawyers because she took the principle of equality and quite cleverly she picked her cases. So um, one of her, some of her most famous cases were actually about men who she argued successfully had been discriminated against in the workplace on this principle of gender equality. So she really kind of expanded the whole notion of the 14th Amendment, which sets out equal rights for people to include gender. And, you know, that was that was quite revolutionary at that time. As you mentioned, she was appointed to the Supreme Court by Bill Clinton in 1993. And it's worth noting that in spite of her strong liberal views and some tough questioning by Republican senators at her confirmation hearing, her appointment was confirmed by 96 votes to three. It's hard to imagine that happening in the partisan politics of today. But what kind of mark did she leave on the Supreme Court as a justice, Suzanne? What was her legacy? Well, there were a few um, specific uh, judgments she was involved with. Um, for example, she authored the court's opinion in a key case in 1996, the Virginia Military Institute. This was a male-only institute, a very historic in Virginia, a very conservative state at that time. And um, she uh, wrote the majority opinion arguing um, that this was denying women equal rights. So women needed to be um, needed to be admitted to this institution. So that was a very important case. But also she uh, was very involved in, in cases, in dissenting opinions of cases where the majority ruled the other way. And one of those was a case called Ledbetter v. Goodyear. And this was about a woman who um, filed a suit against her employer um, saying that uh, she had been had suffered pay discrimination because of her gender and that she had only realised that actually she'd been paid less uh, for the work she did at this company than her male colleagues. Um, now, the key here was that she only found out after um, she left the company and then the case became, she actually lost the case. The Supreme Court ran against it, you know, ruled against it. Um, Genderberg was on the court uh, because they concentrated on the issue of statute of limitations that she had brought this case uh, too late. But it was quite uh, a moment because Ginsburg uh, delivered, um, uh, she, she authored a dissenting opinion and delivered this from the bench, which was kind of relatively unusual. And she basically set out why she thought that was unfair. And she famously said, the con- you know, the ball is now in Congress's court. And that's kind of a broader theme, you know, who, who makes, who, who legislates. You know, in an ideal world, uh, the, the Congress and states would legislate, not the court. So actually, ultimately, the Congress did legislate on this issue, the Ledbetter uh, bill, um, putting into law uh, fair pay for, for people, for women, not based on, on gender. And um, this was then enacted, I think it was by Barack Obama in his first term in 2009. So it was that was, what I think, one of her, her big achievements on the court. Now, we know that her dying wish, as conveyed by her granddaughter, was that her successor would not be appointed until a new president is installed. Republicans may have admired her, Suzanne, but they're not going to grant her that wish, are they? No, I think there was a, a window um, of, there was something of a vacuum here after her death was announced on Friday night. Um, of course, the, the Senate was away from Washington, it was the weekend, and it was only when uh, the 100 members of the Senate returned to Washington late on Monday afternoon that we began to get a sense of how this thing was going to play out. So um, very quickly, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader in the Senate, um, made it clear that he felt it was his right and as he said, his obligation to move forward with this uh, nomination. Now, of course, the controversy is 
that back four years ago, following the death of Antonin Scalia, a conservative justice on the court, who was incidentally very friendly with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, Barack Obama wanted to nominate his suggested replacement, Merrick Garland. But at that time, Mitch McConnell blocked, he, he refused to even hear a, you know, put him forward for a confirmation hearing because he made the argument that because it was an election year, American voters needed to go to the polls and give their opinion on the state of the country and then somebody could uh, appoint a justice. Four years later, the, the same thing has happened and he has backtracked on that. Now, his argument is that it is different because back then in 2016, there was a different party in power in the Senate than, from, than in the White House, whereas this time uh, the Senate is controlled by the Republicans, as is the White House. Um, so he's been making this argument and a lot of other Republicans have come in line, have been repeating that too. So over the next, very quickly really, Chris, uh, over the next 24 hours, early this week, we saw a number of senators come into line. Um, Lindsey Graham, who is now the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, so he will be running the show when this gets to a confirmation hearing. He, um, it was played again and again on social media, but quite recently he said, you know, hold my words against me, but I don't think a Supreme Court justice should be appointed in election year. He has now changed his reverse track on that too. Um, so now the situation is that there are only two Republican senators who oppose having a vote before the election. That's Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Both have a history of voting against Trump and their party on certain issues in the Senate. Um, but Mitch McConnell has a 53 uh, majority, controls the Senate 53 by 53 votes. So it looks like he has enough votes to proceed. Um, he's a canny operator and he will obviously make sure he has those votes before anything is scheduled. But now the question seems to be whether they will have the vote before the election on November the 3rd or in the lame duck session between the election and early January when the new Senate uh, will be sworn in. Um, but all signs at the moment are that they will they will proceed before the election. They want to get this in the bag when they know they have a secure majority. That might not happen. It's quite likely the Democrats will control of the Senate uh, after November. So I think Republicans don't want to take that chance um, and they will probably try and get this through before election day. There are a number of scenarios here, aren't there, Suzanne? You could have a confirmation hearing before the election, in which case you have a Republican majority Senate and a Republican president. You could also have it in the lame duck period, as it's called, after the election, in which case Trump may have been voted out of office but would still be in power. The Republican Senate may still be sitting with its majority, but perhaps a new Senate with a Democratic majority could be coming in in January, that would be highly contentious, wouldn't it? Exactly. And the, and the fear is that um, Mitt Romney, for example, who is one of the Republicans who many people had believed, had hoped on the Democratic side would break with his party, um, said he would vote to confirm um, a justice. But, you know, if, as you say, that scenario unfolds whereby Republicans have, been, have lost their majority in the Senate and Donald Trump has been voted out, would Mitt Romney really sit there and approve a Republican-nominated justice um, by a president who's been voted out among a members of Senate, some of whom have already been voted out. It would be very difficult for some of them politically, I think. So I think that's one of the reasons why Mitch McConnell, if he feels he has the votes, and he's, as I say, he's going to make sure he does before he schedules anything, maybe say, say write a bird in the, in the hand and just try and push this through. Because... Really, that appears to override everything else, even though there's an argument politically even to delay it because it could act as an incentive 
for wavering Republican voters. This, of course, was the big reason why many conservative Republicans held their noses and voted for Donald Trump four years ago because of the promise of a of of conservative justices being nominated and being sworn in across the federal system. Um, so now, again, they have the opportunity to say, look, there's going to be a vote on a justice after the election. You need to come out and vote. So I think they will be at this stage prepared to forfeit that to make sure they get their person on the court before November. I think that is the overriding concern at the moment. On the hypocrisy question, it's probably fair to mention that in 2016, when this row was taking place over Barack Obama's uh, nomination, Joe Biden and others argued that there was nothing in the Constitution to stop a Supreme Court justice being appointed in an election year. So it's not just the Republicans who are having to eat their words from four years ago, is it? Well, that's true. And I mean, the, the reality of this is, apart from the hypocrisy, is that Democrats have very little leverage here. Um, you know, it is set out that, you know, this is how it works. The president can can nominate a Supreme Court justice and then that is up for confirmation in the Senate. But as you pointed out earlier, Chris, I mean, I think it's such a it's such an indication of how partisan this country has become. The fact that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and a lot of her peers were appointed with, you know, 90 plus votes in the Senate in a divided Senate. Um, Mitch McConnell, I believe, actually voted for Ruth Bader Ginsburg back in the 90s. So things have changed so much that you cannot depend on people to cross the aisle. Um, and I think that's just a very bad reflection um, on the state of, of US politics. And of course, this perennial issue of the politicization of the courts and the fact that, you know, despite the, um, you know, the different branches of government, the separation of power, you know, the, the, the executive office and, and the Senate has got such a role in appointing justices to the court and not just Supreme Court. It's worth underlining that at the moment, the Senate is, is pushing through other judges. So um, Donald Trump predicts that by the time he finishes the first term, 300 federal judges will have been appointed by him. So it is quite, quite the legacy. Remind us, Suzanne, of the current makeup of the court. How significant would it be if an avowed liberal were to be replaced by a conservative? It's just the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was such a powerful liberal voice on the court that whoever replaces her is going to tilt the court to the right. That's just the fact. And we're now looking, you know, it, it, it looks certain that it's going to be a 6-3 majority, which is, is you know quite a majority. In saying that, it is worth noting that actually in the last 12 months, there has been, um, there have been a, quite a few judgments that have surprised Republicans. And um, in particular, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, has um, sided with the Liberal members of the court on a number of issues. Back in the early summer, uh, he voted with Liberals um, on a very much a, a landmark case on LBGTQ and trans- transgender rights. Um, which which ensures that the Civil Rights Act applies to people regardless of gender. So that includes um, LBGTQ people. Um, he also sided uh, with Liberals on a case to do with DACA. That's uh, the Dreamers protection that was introduced by President Obama. Um, so for young Americans, young people who are brought to America as children and don't have citizenship. So he's kind of ruffled a few feathers. And in one of those cases, Neil Gorsuch, the one of the justices appointed by Trump, also sided with liberals. So it's been quite an interesting year. 
Um, and there is no guarantee, you know, that a justice will be as conservative as someone like Trump and McConnell may hope. Um, and that, that is the reality. So, you know, it remains to be seen, you know, who he appoints. It now looks like it's Amy Coney Barrett is possibly uh, one candidate. But if it's her and other people that are in the running, these have been vetted very, very um, highly by um, by the Federalist Society, which is a conservative association here in Washington. Um, and the Federalist Society has very strong links with the White House, John McGahn, the first White House counsel, he's a member, etc. So, you know, they are ready for this. You know, the White House has, has expected that there's a possibility that they could get a third, uh, an opportunity to appoint a third justice. So this is not taking them by surprise. So this list of justices that have been put together in coordination, if you like, with the Federalist Society will be watertight, I think. And I think conservatives will be assured that whoever they choose from that list um, will be sufficiently conservative for them. And the point you just made, Suzanne, it demonstrates that a 5-4 majority doesn't guarantee any particular outcome, but a 6-3 conservative majority on the court, that would be a different story, wouldn't it? What would the likely implications be in the long run? Might you be looking at abortion rights being rolled back, for example? Yeah, I think the big issue is abortion rights. And, and I can't overstate how how much of an issue it is for a lot of people in this country on both sides of the divide and of the argument. Um, and uh, the fear is that the 1973 Supreme Court ruling, Roe v. Wade, um, could be overturned uh, in some way. Um, now, again, there was a case this year, actually, where one of these cases where, where uh, the Chief Justice kind of sided with the Liberals um, concerning restrictions on abortion in Louisiana. And in that case, the Chief Justice um, ruled that, you know, against Louisiana saying that, you know, that that they were wrong to restrict uh, restrict rules around abortion. And this was to do with um, admitting privileges for uh, for hospitals and doctors that offered abortion. And it was one of the many ways states were trying to restrict abortion by not saying abortion is illegal, but by putting up obstacles to actually um, getting an abortion. So uh, that was a sign that, you know, maybe Chief Roberts, he, it, it, that he's concerned about precedent, that, that it's not so much what he feels about the rights and wrongs of abortion, but he is definitely uh, intent to stay within this concept of precedent. So that might suggest that, you know, Roe v. Wade might be a bit more secure than people think. But I think even, I mean, even if, uh, so what's going to happen in the next few years is probably that some case that's that's been brought at a state level will make its way to the lower courts and get before the Supreme Courts and they will have to make a judgment on that. That That's what's going to happen. But even if Roe v. Wade was overturned, um, this 1973 ruling, that people, many people believe was not that strong in the first instance and even people like Ginsburg's worry said that um that by striking down abortion so dramatically that it actually gave way to a bit of a backlash which is kind of what we're seeing now in certain states and it would have been better to legislate for abortion in an incremental manner but even if Roe v Wade is overturned in some way you know, states still have significant power in this country over abortion. So I think it'll become a kind of a state's issue. It will depend where you're living. Um, and, you know, in certain states, they will allow access to abortion. In certain states, they won't. So I think that's where um, the discussion will go. As well as Roe v. Wade, though, there will be other cases, uh, most likely uh, uh, on the Affordable Care Act. That's Obamacare. And we're expecting some cases on that quite soon. And also on voting rights. Um 
issues of gerrymandering, of voter participation. This, of course, is going to be a huge issue in November, as it happens. But those cases were expected to come before the courts anyway. So I think that's another area where you may see the Supreme Court ruling. And of course, the implications could become clear immediately after the election, because we could have a situation where the court is being asked to adjudicate on the uh, validity of the result. Will you commit here today for a peaceful transferal of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I understand that, but people are rioting. Do you commit to making sure that there's a peaceful transferal of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, The ballots are out of control. You know it. And you know who knows it better than anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else. That was Donald Trump yesterday, Wednesday, refusing to commit to a transfer of power in in the case of him losing um, and and also raising the spectre of voter fraud and so on. And he reportedly told a group of Republican attorneys this week that a full Supreme Court would be needed to adjudicate on the result. He possibly does have a point here, Suzanne, doesn't he? It might not be the ideal scenario to have a a tied Supreme Court 4-4 adjudicating after the election on the result in, say, a particular state, for example. Yeah, this is the argument that many Republicans have made, that you need a full complement of the court in case they have to judge or make a ruling on the results of the election. But, of course, the argument against that is, well, that didn't seem to bother them in 2016 when Mitch McConnell blocked the Democratic um, nominee to the Supreme Court. There was only eight justices then and it was an election year. So they obviously felt that it wasn't a big issue that time. Um, so, but yeah, that is an argument that's been made. And it is true that now, be, mostly because of Donald Trump's warnings that the elections, election may be rigged, it is very possible that we will have a contested election in November. Okay, there's a couple of reasons why. Yes, because Donald Trump has said that he, he may dispute the results of the election, but also because there is going to be an increase in postal voting this time around because of the coronavirus pandemic. People are wary of going to cast their votes in person and in polling stations around the country. So uh, earlier in the year, we saw a lot of problems, quite frankly, both in terms of the in-person polling. So we saw huge queues of people. So in Wisconsin and Milwaukee, they reduced the number of polls that were open from about 180 to five um, and with disastrous consequences because, you know, people were queuing for hours to vote. Most people didn't bother going out to vote because it was too onerous, etc. Um, and then on the postal voting side of things, we also saw big delays in some primaries, particularly in New York, in the counting of votes. So um, this is kind of presenting a new context for this election in November. And I think if the election is in any way close we could see a lot of legal challenges, particularly on the whole issue of postal voting brought by Republicans, who incidentally um, are already bringing challenges, uh, have already, the Trump administration has brought a number of court cases. For example, it's brought a case in Nevada, um, disputing the fact that the Nevada authorities are sending in sending absentee ballots to all voters in their state, um, regardless of whether they've requested them or not. So there's lots of this litigation going on already. Um, so yeah, we would expect there could be some kind of querying of the results. And and you're absolutely right. We could have a situation that we saw 20 years ago in 2000. Everyone remembers um, the Gore versus Bush election, which came down to dispute of votes in Florida and the Supreme Court weighed in on that, including Ginsburg, actually, who who dissented um, from the majority opinion on that, which obviously gave the election to George W. Bush. Um, and just to, to say, Chris, I'm, I'm writing a piece for the weekend on this at the moment, and people might remember the hanging sh- chads 
of that election this time around it looks like it could be the naked ballots because uh, there's a big controversy in pennsylvania now about um voters who return their absentee ballot without um putting them in a specific sleeve a specific envelope that should go into the envelope that they send back and there's talk that these might be uh, dismissed these votes it could be up to a hundred thousand votes so there's already a battle about that so as i say there could well be um litigation on this after election day on november 3rd well we look forward to reading that piece suzanne and indeed your continuing coverage of the election campaign we'll leave it there for now that's all for this week for more on this and other stories go to irishtimes.com Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.